I was standing on a narrow balcony on the front wall, but on the inside of a big cathedral. Halfway up the wall, it felt like. The cathedral was packed full with people. They're all facing the other way. And then a hush fell across the whole congregation. Someone near me silently lifted their arms in the air. And I and about a dozen others inhaled as much air as we possibly could. And on the descent of his arm, we blasted it out. That's my impression of it, anyway. Thank you. And it continued. I think playing the fanfare for the common man by Aaron Copeland in my brass ensemble that day was the most spine-tingling musical moment of my life. I've been to rock concerts, I've been to pop concerts, I've been to all sorts of things, but that was a moment that sent shivers down my spine. Uh, this term, if you've been around, we've been looking at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And we've had, amongst it all, some excellent definitions of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. For example, discipleship is becoming more like Jesus. Discipleship is boldly listening to Jesus. Discipleship is about submitting and surrendering your life to Jesus as your king. And they're excellent definitions. I want to add one more to you this morning. Discipleship is also responding to the gospel fanfare. Again and again and again. We've learned some other things so far this term. We've learned what the word gospel means. It means an announcement of good news, a proclamation of good stuff for every. Body. A bit like if you, if you were a king in a palace writing a press release to the nation, uh, heralding the birth of an heir to the throne. Or if you're on the front line, the commander of the army of the nation, and you write your edict and it goes back to the capital city declaring, war is over, victory has been achieved. It's that kind of note, it's that kind of announcement. Or if you like, a musical fanfare, an announcement musically that something has begun. And um, Dale very expertly kicked us off in our series looking through the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible with you, do look up the beginning of Matthew. And I'm going to continue with that today. We're still really in an introductory phase. And I'm still going to be picking over the first four chapters of Matthew. I haven't printed many of the scriptures out in the notes. It's not going to come up behind me. If you've got a Bible, you might be, uh, uh, it might be helpful to uh, flick around with me. Because uh, I believe that God wants to help us to hear the different instruments in the gospel fanfare. Because firstly, he wants us to ensure that we've responded to all of those different melodies. And it also wants to ensure that we're able as church to represent this fanfare to others. 
So I'm going to talk about the trumpets and the French horns and the trombones and the tubers. You might know what I'm talking about. That may be alien to you, a little entry into my musical world. The trumpets, if you like, are declaring a gospel fanfare. They're declaring this. God loves rebels. And we're going to pick up Matthew right from the beginning. So Matthew 1, starting at verse 1, says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, and etc. If you're with us on Christmas morning, we went and looked through the whole of that uh, genealogy. 400 years of silence from God. Matthew has the privilege of announcing the start of the New Testament. And what do we get? A family tree. A list of names. Hello, Matthew. What is going on here? Well, I think what's going on is Matthew wants us to note something. This isn't like a hall of fame we're going down. This is like the rogues gallery. As the conductor's hand descends, Matthew wants us to clearly hear the first notes of the gospel fanfare that God loves messed up, error-strewn, hopeless, outcast, rebellious people like these, like you and like me. Let me give you a few examples. We won't go into everybody, but uh, Abraham, we start with him. Abraham was a two-timing ex-moon worshipper who had a propensity to lie about his marital status. (laughs) Jacob was a prolific deceiver. He had a dysfunctional family, no thanks in part to the way he showed obvious favoritism to some of his kids. Perez was a product of Judah's adultery with his prostitute-impersonating daughter-in-law, Tamar. That's why Matthew puts her name in. So we don't miss it. Perez, oh, we've talked about him. Um, Rahab gets a mention. She was a prostitute and a Canaanite, an arch enemy of God's people. Ruth, mentioned here, was a widow, a Moabite, outside of God's people, a migrant worker. Solomon was the illegitimate son of David's affair with who? Uriah's wife, Matthew calls her. Just to point out, where's Uriah? Ah, David has had him killed. We follow on with the vilest, some of the vilest kings of Judah's past until we get to the poor, the young Mary who's assumed to have had illicit sex before marriage. Matthew is getting all the skeletons out of Jesus' biological heritage because he wants you to know that God loves rebels. There's something deliberately discordant in the first bar of the gospel fanfare because God wants you to know that he loves rebels like you and me so much that he humbly left heaven and stepped right into the horrible history of humanity so he could rescue us from the inside out. 
It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what, God, what has uh, been done to you. It doesn't matter how long you've kicked against God in your life. It doesn't matter what your family history looks like. God loves you. So much that he sent Jesus to solve the problems of sin and rebellion against God. And discipleship is about responding to this gospel fanfare again and again and again. And if it is, then surely it's got to start here with just worshipping the God who loves us, the God who stepped in and rescued us, the God of amazing grace. And as a disciple of Jesus, surely we start here just with the breath of worship. Every day is a breath again of our worship of God who loved us so, so much. And it becomes our, our daily pattern to worship him. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, that you came and stepped in and saved me throughout the day. So that when we get to life group or anything on a Tuesday night, we're there to explode with others with gratitude and thankfulness to the God who stepped in and saved us. That when we gather together on a Sunday, we're off on the beer of the bang because we know that our Savior is alive and has rescued even us. That's the first notes of the gospel fanfare. But I want you also to hear the French horns. Do you know a French horn? You put your hand up the end, a bit like that. He wants you to hear the French horn of the gospel fanfare, which goes like this. God wants to live inside people. Let me read a little bit from Matthew chapter 3, if you've got it there. This is John the Baptist who turns up in Matthew's account. And he says this. I baptize you with water, verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Our Bibles, if you've got some headings in there, have been quite kind to this guy called John. They refer to him as John the Baptist, but perhaps a more apt nickname would be John the Weirdo. Because there he was, in his camel hair clothes and his locust and wild honey diet, with his desert call to repentance and water baptism. And he gets his 15 verses of fame as a player in the gospel fanfare. And what does Matthew record his notes as being? Others have said that John says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But Matthew wants to make sure we get a different part of the gospel fanfare. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. God wants to come and inhabit and dwell and live in the lives of human people. It's, it's, I mean, where do you hear messages like this? Who else has got anything like this? And as if to emphasize this message, Matthew goes on to explain that the Spirit of God at Jesus' baptism descended on him like a dove. Jesus was then spoken over by, by God himself to say, you are my son. And the Spirit led him into the desert, into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. But it was the Spirit that led him there. And the Spirit led him on into public ministry of preaching and healing and seeing every sickness submit to him. He showed us what a spirit-filled life was all about. 
And we've got to be careful not to reduce, I guess, the gospel to just the fact that Jesus died on a cross to forgive our sins. That is good. That is wonderful. It is part of the gospel fanfare. But the gospel is so much more than that. You see, God's primary objective is to fill us with himself. But we need to be holy because God is holy and to make us holy, that's not holy as in with holes in, by the way. That's holy as in separated, set apart, pure and good like God is. In order to make us holy, Jesus had to go to the cross and we needed in faith in him to receive the forgiveness for our sins and then we have been made holy. And now the Holy Spirit, God himself, can live inside of you and me. You see, filling with the Spirit is the end goal for Jesus. And forgiveness is the means. That's good news. That is good news. Who else has a message like that? You can now live the rest of your life from here with the presence of God, not just with you, not just by you, not just surrounding you, not just on you, but in you. In you. Empowering you, leading you, guiding you, supernaturally changing things around you by his spirit. And if discipleship is about responding to the gospel again and again, then it's about practicing the presence of God on a daily basis. It's about walking in the spirit, being led by the spirit, staying in step with the Holy Spirit, asking every day, Holy Spirit, would you come and fill me again with yourself? Would you so kind of guide me and lead me? This day would be supernatural in you. And that's what uh, Jesus went on to do. If you read on, as we're going to do over the coming weeks from Matthew 4 onwards, it's what Paul keeps going on about in his letters, Romans 8, Galatians 5, elsewhere. It's why the Bible refers to Christians like this, as jars of clay, as paper cups, as beakers. Because what's special is not the vessel, but what's inside. The treasure is within. The treasure is God himself by his Holy Spirit. It's why the Bible refers to Christians as temples of the Holy Spirit. There is no temple other than us. We are to house the Spirit of God. It's why the Bible refers to Christians as living stones. An oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. Stones are dead. They don't do anything. Yeah, but we, we, we are like that, but we've been made alive because the Spirit of God is alive within us. That's the second part of the gospel fanfare for us this morning. The third one are the trombones. I like trombones. I play a trombone. Toby plays a trombone. You might have heard us at the uh, Christmas carol service. So what is the trombones playing in the gospel fanfare? It's playing this melody. Jesus lived the life you couldn't. Do you ever wonder why Jesus was baptized in water? You ever wonder that? I'm thankful that John the Baptist himself also wondered that. Let's again look at chapter 3 and pick up from verse 13. John was doing his thing. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. 
And that was enough to convince John. John consented. Jesus was baptized in water. What made John change his mind? What was in that response from Jesus that said, I've come, it's proper for me to do this, to fulfill all righteousness? Well, if you read the first four chapters of John, I'm going to skim through some of it now, and I encourage you to do so. I think Matthew teases us up perfectly for this. He doesn't leave us looking for long. He really kind of gives us the paper trail here. Because he's already used the word fulfill and fulfillment and the concept of fulfillment many, many times in these few chapters alone. Let me just point them out to you. In chapter 122, he points out how Jesus, being born of a virgin, was fulfilled was fulfilling, sorry, Isaiah chapter 7. He says in chapter 2, verses 5 to 6, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem to fulfill, and he quotes, Micah 5, verse 2, out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel, it says to Bethlehem. Similarly, in verse 15 of chapter 2, Matthew points out how Jesus, being small, moved to Egypt fulfilled Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, that out of Egypt I called my son. He then shows how the horror of King Herod's genocide against children fulfilled Jeremiah 3.14. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. He also points out how Jesus returned with his family to Nazareth, to Nazareth in chapter 2, 23 fulfilling the prophecy about him being called a Nazarene. To add to all these, John's desert ministry, chapter 3, verse 3, fulfills Isaiah 40, verse 3, so Matthew points out. And Jesus then, moving again from Nazareth to Capernaum in chapter 4, verse 13, fulfilled Isaiah chapter 9, 1 to 2, about a light dawning on a people living in darkness in the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles. That's interesting. What's it about? See, I think this. Jesus surely would have been just as good a sinless, atoning sacrifice as a toddler at the hands of King Herod as he was 30 years later by crucifixion at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Why do we have those intervening years in Jesus' life? I think we've got a clue here. He needed time to fulfill all righteousness, as he put it. So what was he filling? Well, he was clearly fulfilling prophetic words that had come over many generations. He was clearly doing that. But was it simply God's little treasure hunt for Jesus to skip along and go through? Was it just God showing how clever he is at getting all these things to tie up so beautifully for our modern Bibles? Was he trying to provide Jesus with enough evidence for others to know that Jesus must be the Messiah because he couldn't have orchestrated all of that? Well, actually, I think there's a little bit more to it than even that. Why is this... Geography so important. Why is he zigzagging across the country at great cost and in horrible circumstances, going to unglamorous, unfriendly, inhospitable places? Well, I believe it's because Jesus was fulfilling the life that Israel had meant to live. 
but he was doing so with perfection. It is uncanny how the geography and the experiences that Jesus went through so mapped the nation of Israel and the people of God in the Old Testament. Let's give you a few examples just to point them out. Isaac was a miraculous birth. King David was born in Bethlehem. The Hebrews were also refugees in Egypt. Moses' peers were also lost to infanticide at Pharaoh's command. So in light of that, we can now see Jesus' baptism mapped the Israelites passing through the Red Sea as they escaped slavery under Egypt and went into the Promised Land and into freedom. You think I'm making it up? Paul made the same conclusion. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 2. He talks about the Red Sea and also the pillar of cloud being like a baptism for the people of Israel. And then we can begin to see as we read on, as we will in the coming days and weeks, how Jesus' 40 days of desert temptation mapped the 40 years of wilderness wandering of the people of God. Yet Jesus didn't commit idolatry or immorality or grumbled like they had. Then we can see how Jesus' 12 disciples that were called out, in chapter 4 some of them were, matched and mapped the 12 tribes of Israel. This is not because 12 and 40 are God's favourite numbers. It's fulfilling something. And why did Jesus go to Capernaum? Well, the, the prophetic word in Isaiah 9 did describe this area as the Galilee of the Gentiles. For a reason. Gentiles lived also in that kind of area. And of course we know, don't we, that Israel was always meant to be blessed by God and a blessing to the nations. Jesus had come to fulfill what Israel had failed to do. Kevin's going to look at the Sermon on the Mount next week. And it's on a mount, not by chance, not by coincidence, not by convenience, but to match the law coming to Moses on another mountain. You know, we are saved by faith in Jesus, but we're also saved by works. By Jesus' works, not our works. His obedience, his righteousness. Fillmore puts it like this. We are not saved because God has decided to look upon Jesus' life, death and resurrection, instead of the righteous requirements of the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. We are saved because Jesus fulfilled those requirements to the full and because God counts his righteous obedience as if it were ours. We sang it in the very first song. It was absolutely wonderful. Let me get the melody. Oh, help me get it right, Jim. How does it go? Uh, we exchange through his life and death our guilty rags for his righteousness. Amen. Be there. God had prepped us for this at the beginning of the meeting. Paul writes something similar in Romans chapter 5, 19. He says this. Just as through the disobedience of the one man, talking about Adam, as in Adam and Eve, the many were made sinners. So also through, through the what? Through the obedience of the one man, who are we talking about now? Jesus. The many <laughs> will be made righteous. Hallelujah. This is good news, people. This, it doesn't get any of it. This is better than we thought it was. It really is. Who has got a message like this? 
in the world, in any other religion or philosophy. No, it just doesn't compare. That deals so completely with guilt. So thoroughly and utterly. And we need to pick out the trombones in the gospel fanfare. Because you see what happens is when we put our faith in Jesus, not only does God place our evil and sin and rebellion on him and then crushes him at the cross, but he also places the righteous deeds of Jesus on us. Hallelujah. If you put your faith in Jesus, when God looks at you, he doesn't just see a clean slate. You don't just leave your sins behind with Jesus and come neutral into the kingdom of God. You're not just clean and, 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 and blank. He sees the perfect, law-abiding, law-fulfilling, righteous obedience of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And discipleship is about responding to this gospel again and again and again. It's about us daily putting our faith in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then, then I think, then I believe we're able to live a grace-filled, a grace-fueled life. Unshackled from guilt. Free to follow in the footsteps of the righteous life that Jesus lived for us. You're struggling with righteousness. You're struggling to live out obedience to Christ. Come here. Come here. Believe he's lived it for you. Receive it. And the tubers. I had a friend who played a tuba. It's a big old thing, isn't it? Big old tuba. And it's like the bass line running through the gospel fanfare. So what is it? Let me tell you what it is. It is this. Jesus is the king. It was what Dale focused on last week, and I make no apology for it, because Matthew's first four chapters and the rest of his book is dripping with this truth, that Jesus is the king. Let me just highlight a few things in the first four chapters here that illustrate his king-type references. If you look at the genealogy of Jesus, it's clear that Matthew's pointing to King David as the focal point that preceded Jesus. You read that, you'll see that in chapter 1. In Matthew's nativity account, he's the only gospel writer to include references to King Herod and his son. The only one who refers to the Magi and their search for the king of the Jews. He's the only one who records the Magi bringing gifts of gold fit for a king to Jesus. And he's being deliberate about this in chapter 2. He's, he's emphasizing, as we've heard, how John and Jesus, in chapter 4, both spoke of the kingdom of heaven being near. That was the summary statement of their message. We can conclude that Jesus is the king from John's reverence for him, for the audible voice of God declaring, he's my son, and for the demonstration of his kingdom that Jesus went on to do by the time he get to the end of chapter 4. Healing every sickness and disease. You know, I think we've got a little bit of a cultural challenge here. Particularly in the West, maybe not exclusively. Other nations as well. Of responding 
to the gospel message that Jesus is king. I think actually that's why it's so helpful to have the contrast of King Herod in the first chapters of Matthew. Because people understood then, a king has absolute power, absolute authority, can do what he likes. His reign is free. So we find out, don't we, about Herod. He forcibly, uh, we saw pregnant mothers forcibly moving just before uh, the arrival of their baby due to king's edicts. We're hearing about babies and toddlers being killed innocently just as a precaution for King Herod. We hear later about King Herod deciding to arrest John the Baptist because he was annoying him. We, heard, we, le- we find out later that he had John beheaded to save face at a party. That is what a king can do. In contrast, however, to our King Jesus. The gospel, you see, isn't the good news that the democratic republic of heaven is near. It doesn't work like that. The gospel isn't the message that the constitutional monarchy of heaven is near. If you're Britain, it might make some sense of that. But what? That the kingdom of God is here. And the one thing a kingdom has is a king who rules with complete power and authority and who say-so goes. Anyone seen the queen? In the flesh, I saw the Queen once. She came to Harrow, where I used to live, 50 years after first commissioning it as a new London borough. I'll tell you, the clean-up operation beforehand was a sight to behold. It was weeks. They were scrubbing the streets, literally. They repainted all the yellow lines down the side of the roads for a mile radius from where she might turn up, and down the middle of the road. They blasted with a jet kind of thing, the chewing gum off the high street, for weeks, it seemed like, because the Queen was coming. And I, I worked near the kind of high street area, so at lunchtime we all went down and ten deep on either side of the pavement, and I got my little flag and we waved, didn't we? Yeah, the Queen, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she went and didn't say much, and one person gave us some flowers, and yeah, 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 see the Queen. I mean, I went back to the office afterwards, and you know, of course, you look at the newspaper, don't you? It comes out your local rag to see if a photo with you in the background had turned up, and it had. I was there in the background. She was there. That was me. Yeah. At the back of these 10 deep kind of crowd. Uh, And then that's about it, isn't it? I mean, if she said anything to me, if she'd given me a command, if she'd told me to do something, I mean, what would have happened? It would have been revolution, as it would be. It doesn't kind of work like that in our world, does it? She's a figurehead. She might hold some, uh, Hannah will correct me here, she might hold some kind of paper power, but it's not really real, is it? It's not genuine. Our danger is that we can treat Jesus as king a bit like we might treat Elizabeth as queen. Yay! Off we go. You know, it's it's not that kind of king. The gospel fanfare is Jesus is king and he's come and he's going to assert his reign in our lives and on this earth. And discipleship is about responding to this gospel again and again and again because it's about us totally surrendering and submitting to him again and again and again as our king. Matthew gives us a beautiful example of Joseph who found himself in this awkward situation with Mary as someone who did just that. He obeyed God at every turn. He doesn't get much press really, does little Joseph, but he's there as the first example of a gospel responder to Jesus as king. 
He gets all sorts of instructions from God through dreams and the angelic. And every time he obeys, what, whatever his personal preference might have been, whatever he, the cost may have been to him, he took Mary as his wife with child. He fled to Egypt in the middle of the night to be a refugee. He came back to Israel on the prompt. He went to Galilee instead because of God's instruction. And our nation, if we're going to win them for Christ, needs disciples of Jesus like this. Only then will the fanfare of the gospel be heard over the wishy-washy supermarket music of liberal, lame Christianity that they're so used to. It's when people discover that you give a tenth of your income at least to the work of God. It's when people discover you're a virgin in your 30s because you're waiting for marriage. When, they, when people discover well, what, you, you give up every Sunday morning to worship God with his people. It's when people get to find out what, I know you've got same-sex attraction, but what, you live a celibate, single life because of that. It's when people discover what, you, you don't join in with the office gossip and the scandal and the bad jokes. Why's that? Because you're a disciple of Jesus, because you're part of a different kingdom, because you're submitting and surrendering your life under him in obedience and faith. You see, the gospel is a revolution. It's a revolution. To abandon the oppressive regime of public opinion and join God's revolution. If we're not considered a bit odd, if we're not con- possible recipients of persecution, then perhaps we're not living as disciples of Jesus at all. I just want to read you a little bit from Job. It came to me last week, Job 23. He says this, Job had everything taken away from him. He had everything and it was all taken away. And he said this at one point, 23.10, but he knows, God knows, the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. But he, God, stands alone. Who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. He carries out his decree against me and many such plans he still has in store. That is why I am terrified before him. When I think of all this, I fear him. You see, Job knew, I think, that discipleship was about fearing God as his king. I think Job knew that it was about treasuring the words of God as words of the king. He knew that closely following the way and the commands of the king would produce the stuff of kings in his life. Gold. Gold will be produced ultimately. 
Great. I'd love us to stand, if you want to, if you will, as we just respond to these things. Thank you. I'd encourage you uh, to close your eyes at this moment. It's really just a simple way of uh, focusing our own hearts and not being distracted by so much and not being a distraction to others. Because the first thing I want to ask is, um, is this. Have you ever responded to this gospel? That God loves rebels. That God wants to come and live inside of you. That Jesus has lived the life you couldn't. And Jesus is the king. If you've never done that before, then I'd encourage you to do this today. Acknowledge his love for you. Put your faith in Jesus' life, death and resurrection. Surrender your life to him as your king and ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. You can do all of those things in a moment today. And after our song in a minute, I'd encourage you, if that's you, to come to the front by this black and white banner and someone from our ministry team will gladly pray with you. If you're already a Christian here today, my question to you is, are you responding to this gospel fanfare again and again and again? Discipleship is taking every opportunity, every moment where God reminds you of these truths to respond to it by worshipping him, by being filled with the Spirit again, by believing that his righteous life is yours by faith, and by living in radical obedience to his word, whatever it costs and whatever your preference. And if something is particularly, excuse the pun, struck a chord with you this morning, from the words that were brought earlier, from anything that I've shared, then at the same time, after this song, you come to the front as well. One of our ministry team will pray for you. And church, just one final point for us. We're on mission together. So let's remember to pick out the different parts of the gospel fanfare to those we're witnessing to. Sometimes it will be that Jesus died on the cross to forgive your sins. But it doesn't have to start with that bar. Know the full score. Ask the Spirit to direct you to the part of the fanfare that will grab their attention. Thanks, Jim.